Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Soft Rep Radio. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. I am your host this morning, Steve Valsbury. Joining us very shortly, we're going to have a very special guest, Mindy Kotler Smith. Uh, Mindy is a uh, a very important member of the. Uh, I want to say this correctly: the American Defenders of Bataan and Corregidor. Memorial Society. And we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about a couple of things, actually, that had to do with POWs during that time frame. Um, we're, we're going to look at, you know, everyone's very familiar with the Bataan Death March, and we all know all about that. But there was others that took place that weren't as possibly well known, I guess you could say. So we're, we're going to get into all that. Um, but before we do, I just need to read you a really quick uh, message from SoftRep. Uh, SoftRep will be giving away some brand new top-of-the-line smartphones as part of their third quarter sweepstakes running from July 1st to September 30th. If you're a member of SoftRep, all you need to do is use your special referral link to tell your friends, family, whoever about soft rep you'll take in points for every referral that becomes a member and the winner will be receiving his choice of either a brand new iphone 12 
128 gigabytes or a Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra 5G, also 128 gigabytes. So if you're not a member of SoftRep and you sign up for a membership during the third quarter, you can simply sign in and start using your referral link to participate. Plus, if you sign up during the third quarter, you automatically get entered into our new member sweepstakes for a chance to win an Emerson Commander Knife and a Surefire LED flashlight. So there's no better time to join SoftRep than right now. So with that being said, let's bring on our guest. Mindy, thank you for taking the Hi. time this morning. We really appreciate your uh, your patience with us and joining us this morning. So welcome to SoftRep Radio. Thank you for having me. And um, you did more or less pronounce it correctly. <laughs> if you're from the Philippines or we're a POW, it's Bataan. If you're from the New York metropolitan area, it's Bataan. Okay. <laughs> I've heard both. I wasn't sure which is the correct one. So uh, I, I we'll, we'll go with the Filipino. Yeah, yeah I grew up on a farm in upstate New York, so I say things like coffee and Bataan. There you go. Hey, let's uh, let's talk about you know your organization first. Um, tell us a little bit about the American Defenders of Bataan and Corregidor Memorial System. <laughs> it's a great organization. If you're interested in World War Pacific Theater, World War II history, and interested in the American POW Japan experience, this is the organization to be a member of. It was founded in 1946 by a man by the name of Sam Moody from uh, Lynn, Massachusetts. He was on the Bataan Death March, and he was a slave laborer in a uh, train factory in Japan. Uh, which makes any train you go on in Boston or New York or Chicago, they this company still exists, and um, they have yet to apologize for torturing Mr. Moody in the in in, in at their uh, factory. They made him stand, and he had sort of a world record for standing for about three and a half days at attention. He was young oh. and stupid. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> and so he found his organization mainly for the POW. So they, he understood that only people who were POWs could really understand each other. And for the first 40 years, it was a drink fest. It was three days of drunken whatever. And then as they got older and, and sobered up and families started becoming involved, the uh, people started researching and trying to understand uh, what had happened to the POWs. And also by the 70s, people understood the, uh, what PTSD was. And every single POW that came back because of the torture they experienced, the deprivation that they experienced, and the sheer inexplicable inhumanity that was inflicted upon them by the Japanese, they all had severe to awful PTSD. Very, the highest rate of suicide though as i've told you they didn't call it suicide then it was an accident it was an accident that the train that the truck stalled on the railroad tracks it was an accident that the rifle went off just happened to be pointed to his head um things like that and in fact um i'm sure some of the listeners are from california um and it doesn't matter how you feel about governor newsom but um, his grandfather was a very disabled POW who became a very well-known horticulturalist. But one day in the 70s, he took a rifle and was going to kill his two twin uh, daughters, of which one became the mother of the governor. And instead of killing his daughters, he killed himself in front of them because mm. he couldn't live with himself anymore. This was not an unusual story. Now, and how so, many, how many, so, uh, so anyway, now in, in the, by 19, uh, by, by 2009, the POWs were a little too old and the families and descendants have taken over and now it's more of a memorial society. We also, uh, the last POW commandant, um, negotiated with the Japanese government with the help of the U.S. government to finally get something the U.S. government had never done. We never went to, in 1995, uh, 
the Japanese created um, a fund for reconciliation with um, many of its victims in Asia and the POWs uh, and POWs, but the P only POWs who got any uh, any uh, relationship to this, where they they created uh, research uh, funds, trips to Japan for reconciliation, and conferences. It was only for the British, the Australians, and the Dutch. The Americans were completely left out, and the U.S. government did nothing for them. In fact, the U.S. government has denied them funds. It, it, it fought against them being able to sue for their the, the wages they did as slave laborers in all the major Japanese companies. Um, and so it wasn't until the Obama administration that they took this on and they negotiated with the Japanese to start um, a visitation program for ex-POWs to for them and their families to go back to Japan and actually be treated like royalty. And um, I have been told by a number of the POWs that after those trips, they stopped, the, night, the nightmare stopped. Well, that's um, good. And now, now we're, we're on children, and but children is, is, and this is what we have to always explain to the children doesn't mean someone who's 20 years old. Children means someone who's 80. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or seventy, you know, that's, that's not exactly a children, right? Um, but how many so of that are we, are? we work with the government. We testify to Congress, and we advocate. And we one of the main things we really want is to get a congressional gold medal, of which there is one incredibly bad bill in in Congress being considered, and one very good bill that um, we're trying to get more attention to. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay, medal. sorry, I, I, you shouldn't get me <laughs> off on a tangent. That's quite all right. I, I was uh, trying to ask you, how many of our POWs from that era are still alive? Well, the, the short answer, we don't fully know, but I think the answer is more like around 200. Wow, that's not very many and left. The, and, and we just lost one last week who was 101. Wow. From Minnesota. And uh, it's and it is, in fact, we lost two, one from Minnesota and one from um, I think he was from California. Uh, so it, it's little a lot of the men came back and simply didn't want to talk about it, let alone join something. So there's a lot of people floating out there who we're not we just don't know about. So there's always people who appear. Right. And now uh, let's let's go back to that time in um, 1942. You know, everyone, like I said at the outset of the podcast, everyone knows about the Bataan Death March. Right. You know, this, it was uh, 65 miles or so. Uh, well, that, that again, is, is a bit of a misnomer. It, there's a few things. Okay. People don't know where Bataan is. It's in the Philippines. <laughs> there is a... <laughs> There's Manila and there's a bay, and on one end of the bay is this peninsula. In the middle of the bay is this a series of fortress islands, of which the most famous is Corregidor, which mm -hmm. is in the Marine Corps anthem. Uh, Bataan. So when when Bataan was surrendered, and this every POW who was on the Bataan Death March will snap at you and say, "I did not surrender." I was surrendered. They were told to to go to the tip of, of the the peninsula or at a midpoint and start gathering, and they were to march up the peninsula to a train station. From the tip of Bataan to this train station is 65 grueling miles. April is one of the absolute hottest months in the Philippines. And that's saying a lot when it's hot all the time. Yeah. Um, and then from the train station is about 17 miles in these boxcars, which literally some of them, if you were to look at the Holocaust boxcars in France, they literally the same cars. Um, and so the men were packed into these boxcars, a hundred, these are very tiny boxcars. Uh, they were packed a hundred at a time. Men you can imagine the filth, the dysentery, the waste, the, the vomit, 
and men died standing up. And then after they they fell out of the bus cars, they had to march another three miles. So all this is about 85 miles. But the but the the best known is the 65 mile march. But not everyone did 65, but it only felt like 6,000 miles because it was so horrific. It, and that, we all know about that one. The the one well, I wanted to we ask. Do and we do. I don't think people really understand how uh, capricious and ill-prepared the Japanese were. And ill-prepared is one thing, but you another thing is the abject inhumanity and cruelty and and just the willfulness of and delight of killing people along the march. They would run over them with tanks or, or trucks and leave them embedded in the road. If someone tried to get something to drink, they shot him in the back of the head uh, or they bayoneted him and they would make the other POWs bury him alive. Um, they took the, there were two field hospitals large field hospitals at the beginning of the route. They made all the prisoners get out no matter what condition and they were. And that's how most of the Filipinos died. They were in no condition to march, let alone walk a, a half, a, half a step. So they died. Um, they, If you were in a, a Japanese officer was in a truck, he just put out his sword and and behead someone. They did not feed them for a day and a half. There were hardly any water breaks. Uh, they take up the most stinking, disgusting, inhumane uh, trek in the hottest possible way. I think you're there. They, they do not understand, no one understands the atrocity enough. And and then for, for, and not everyone was another thing. Not everyone was on the Bataan Death March. People think if you're a POW Japan and you're in the Philippines, you're at the Bataan Death March. Well, there's there's a few caveats to that. One is about two thousand guys, more or less, jump into the bay and being all being young and stupid. And you have to understand the bay has had sharks, had mines, had all sorts of ships that were on fire and blown up stuff all over the place they swam or floated to the three miles to corregidor corregidor was a fortress island which is where was the headquarters for u.s forces in the philippines and there were on corregidor were the marines and uh, coast artillery and anyone who could get there i'm good friends with a man who was army air corps yeah, unfortunately, uh, well, you have to understand when the Japanese bombed um, Pearl Harbor, at the same time they bombed the Philippines, they bombed Hong Kong, they bombed Howland Island, they bombed Wake Island, they bombed Guam, they bombed Shanghai, and they bombed a part of Malaya. So this wasn't, it was, this was all out war for the Japanese. And so, I so so the all the airfields by December tenth were knocked out. So all the airmen and all the and also all the the navy yard was knocked out. They all were sent to Bataan become provisional infantry. And so this gentleman uh, jumped in the water at the beginning of the march and swam to Corregidor and fought with the Marines. So he was in the Air Corps. The army, the army infantry, and the Marine Corps. What you um, so I, I, I already got lost in what I was saying. <laughs> That's <laughs> quite all right. Okay, now, so it the, was a god awful situation. How's that? Yeah, we, that's, we should appreciate more. Yes, that's very, very true. And, and which brings us to the other death march that we mentioned at the outset. Um, right. This is one that, you know, honestly, until uh, I started corresponding with you, I was not aware of. So inform our listeners a little bit about this one. Okay. Well, part of what I, the, <clears throat> knowing that there were American and Filipino troops on the island of Corregidor and the other little islands near Corregidor is understanding that troops weren't only on Bataan, but they were throughout the Philippines. Uh, throughout other islands and other parts of the Philippines. And one group was on an island which we know about today as 
uh, Mindanao, which is a stronghold for um, Muslim Filipinos. And we were quite ISIS, a number yeah. of plantations there. We had a, a airfield. We were building an airfield. Uh, the, there were a number of things going on. And we had a, a very sophisticated, very savvy uh, general, Guy Fort, in charge of the American Filipino troops on Mindanao. He was told, and Mindanao was like the last to surrender. One of the reasons um, with Corregidor, they felt that when Wainwright was surrendered his tr troops, they said, well, you're surrendering all the Philippines. And he said, no, uh, there's commanders all over the Philippines. And he says, well, you, you get them to surrender or we kill everyone here. So he sent uh, people out with a Japanese officer to try to track these guys down and get them to, to surrender. Most of Guy Fort, who had been spent basically a lifetime in the Philippines, knew Mindanao uh, like the back of his hand, was practically uh, a Moro. And most of his Filipino troops uh, went into the uh, jungle to become uh, guerrillas. Mm -hmm. And his troops were told, his, the Americans were told if they leave, we're going to kill every, they will kill everyone in Corregidor. So he, some of the Filipinos and he, were surrendered in um, near a lake uh, in Mindanao, and they felt the Japanese felt the, the thing about the death marches. There have been many throughout the Pacific. It was systemic. Um, the 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 level of cruelty was systemic. The level of incompetence was systemic, in the sense that. Yes, you can be disorganized, but why do you have to be so cruel? And, and this was where, whether you were in the Andaman Islands, whether you were on Borneo, there's the very famous Sandakan death march where all of the 2,400 people who started out, only six survived. Um, there, So this, in Mindanao, they took the American troops, there were about 300 or so, and they made, they wired them together and they made them walk which we think you know 25 miles how, how hard can that be well if if you stumble and they bayonet you if you try to get something to drink they bayonet you if you fall behind they bayonet you the filipinos were made to take their shoes off and they had to walk on the hot pavement you have to understand that it was incredibly hot this is the tropics. So, and like, even with the death march, many of the men made it, but they often, they died at, in droves once they got there. Something about achieving the goal. So, what and what is significant about this Mindanao death march, which has actually a number of names, there were much less survivors, but it was one of the 16 war crimes that the Filipino prosecutors brought to the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal. It was considered that grave, that awful, that over the top, that they raided that with the Palawan Massacre and the Bataan Death March. And if you don't know what the Palawan Massacre is, and that's significant for today's foreign policy, American foreign policy, we have uh, an agreement with the Filipinos, uh, an enh uh, enhanced agreement to, for defense, and we're using an airfield on this island, this beautiful island of Palawan. Well, this airfield was built by American POWs for the Japanese Army Air, Air, Air Corps. They didn't call it a corps or force. It was a Japanese, Imperial Japanese Army airplanes. So this, in, in, with by hand, there were no, no machinery they had to build this from the coral, and it was hor it was horrible work. They were hardly fed. Um, they were constantly and capriciously tortured. And so toward the end of when the airfield was finished, uh, they left 150 guys there. This is in 1944, December 1944. Um, 
the U.S. was already coming uh, to the Philippines. They had started uh, uh, approaching and landing on the Philippines in October. So the Japanese, uh, there, there are some examples of it, but there was a kill all order out for all POWs from the Japanese. So what they did, they had the uh, POWs uh, dig air raid trenches. Mm -hmm. And so one day, December 14th, which should live in history, uh, they told the men to get in the air raid trenches. They doused them with airplane fuel, light, lit them on fire, and machine gunned them. And any guy who tried to crawl out, they, sh they shot machine gun, or in some cases played with. Uh, some of the POWs were smart enough when they were building the trench to feel something was wrong, and the field was on the side uh, of the on a cliff of sorts so they you could at one end could actually push out the end to jump in to the water uh 11 guys got out uh some in the water some just hiding in the jungle they were able to the japanese found some of them and killed them but the 11, 11 were able to get to across to, to some other part uh, in, in the Palawan where there was a prison colony and there was also guerrillas. And when MacArthur heard about this, he realized he had to step up the rescues. And so if you've seen the movie, The Great Raid, where mm -hmm. they liberate the POW camp in January, 1945, the movie starts with the Palawan massacre. Right. And, um, yeah, uh, one of the men who was rescued there, I wanted to talk about in just a second, but, oh. um, I wanted to mention, uh, general Fort because yes, uh, general Fort was executed by the Japanese right. later in 1942, the only American born, uh, general officers to be executed during right. the war. Um, right. Now, they that was because he, he wouldn't give up his men who had joined the guerrillas? Is that right. what that was exactly. about? Exactly. He was a very tough, stern, interesting fellow. They wanted him to go into the jungle and get his Filipinos and any of the Americans back. He just was not going to do it. And also, it wasn't going to happen, even if he had done it. And so the, the Japanese killed him. They beheaded him. It was that simple. It was that simple for, for the, and, and see what people, when the Japanese have said, well, these were just isolated incidences, this just happened, but wherever the Japanese went, whether it was in Northern China, whether it was in the Aleutian Islands, I bet you didn't know the Japanese invaded the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, they beheaded, they tortured, they humiliated, they starved the, the people around them. The Aleutian Islands is the Battle of Attu. The Japanese in, also in 1942 took over the island of Attu, and the, uh, of which there were 42 Aleutian Aleuts and two Americans, a husband and wife, a teacher, and a weatherman. They took the weatherman and they shot him. And then they took the teacher and she said uh, that they asked, they tried to interrogate her. And then eventually they dragged her dead husband's dead body in front of her and then beheaded him in front of her. Then they took the, uh, the Alut, um, Native Americans to Northern Japan where they died in droves because they were forced to work and they couldn't eat the Japanese food. They were very subject to diseases. Um, the women were raped and the, uh, the American woman was taken to um, near Tokyo and was eventually joined by a bunch of Australian nurses uh, and, and they were not liberated until literally MacArthur landed on uh Japan and the the soldiers were driving down the road and they saw a whole bunch of white women like where'd that come from? Hmm. Well, anyway, I wanted to sw switch I up again. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to switch up a little bit. Um, 
because uh, one of the things that you also sent me when we started corresponding was about the first tank battle that was won by the United States. And again, this was something I was not aware of. The first tank battle that the United States won during the Second World War was in the Philippines. Exactly. Um, exactly. And can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this? Well, I am not very good on tank battles, but there were two big, important tank battalions that arrived in the Philippines in in late November 1941. So they were about basically in the Philippines for a week before the war started. Uh, the first shots to be fired really in World War II were from one of these tank battalions. Uh, they So you had the 192nd uh, and then 194th. And the part of this tank battalion, interestingly enough, um, I, I really can't give you, the, they were to cover the, some people call it retreat. MacArthur would say it was a withdrawal of US forces on the island of Lausanne into Bataan, which they felt they could defend better uh, than just scattered throughout the island. And so they covered the, the, the withdrawal. And in one of the cases, they had an all out tank battle with the J Japanese very early on and they won it. And it's pretty shocking, but not shocking, but impressive and amazing. And one of the tankers, interesting enough, was a name of a guy called John Robinette. And where have we heard that name before? Well, it turns out he is related to President Biden. And he is sort of sixth cousin once removed, but it is the family through his father. Uh, he he clearly fought very courageously, clearly suffered in the, the withdrawal down Bataan. And he went through the Bataan death march and he died in November 1942 of Berry the con The conditions in these, these were makeshift last minute POW camps with no water, no medical care, no food. It is grim as you can imagine. And there were points at these POW camps where people 300 to 400 a day were dying. But he died in November at Cabana Tuan. And he uh, was able after the war, uh, his body was able to be identified and retrieved and he was buried back home. There is a whole huge effort to um, try to identify many of the unknowns from the Cabana Tuan POW camp. Uh, and that's becoming quite successful now that we have DNA. Yeah. And um, I was reading about after, you know, we were corresponding back and forth about this tank battle and yeah. um, it you was. You probably a, tell me better. You know, yeah, I, well, I, well, the it was a, part, it, it, I'm, I'm most interested in the humanity and sociology of you know, how how did such a, as they say in the history, clusterfuck happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, and one of the, the tankers who was considered a hero at the time, um, you know, his name was Gentry, and he was later liberated at Cabana Tuan during the raid by the U.S. Army Rangers. I, and if he was at Cabana Tuan when the, the great raid, those were the 500 guys that were too sick and firm, just they could not transport to Japan. They, the Japanese tried to get everyone who was on the Philippines, particularly the officers, to Japan. There's some thinking and that this was to create a hostage situation. But so because so many documents were destroyed by the Japanese, we don't know for sure. Uh, so he must have been in pretty bad shape uh, in in January 1945. My own uh, descent relative was on Corregidor with the Army Corps of Engineers, and he actually, and he was older because he was a mining engineer on the Philippines and enlisted or whatever start when, when the war started, and he, he died of pick, pick a disease, and because 
just before liberation uh, in January 45. Oh, wow. He didn't make it. And he's buried in the Philippines. Now, um, you mentioned earlier um, about, you know, there there's, well, we were talking offline, but you mentioned there's a lot of uh, revisionist history going on with the Japanese in regards to POWs and the way they treated civilian internees, not only uh, Americans, Australians, New Zealanders, British yeah. subjects, Chinese. And uh, I know in some of the information you sent me, the uh, Tokyo Information Center, they, one of their coal mines where the largest, I guess it was the largest one. The largest coal mine in Japan. Yes. And it's now considered, um, what was it? A, uh, a UNESCO U- World Industrial <laughs> Heritage Site. The, the Japanese, since the Abe administration starting in 2007, he had a one-year term, and then he came back in the end of 2012. His He believes, and his everyone around him believes, that there's been a masochistic telling of Japanese history, that Japanese history should be more glorious, that they were literally tricked into the war by the U.S. The U.S. has exaggerated the stories of the war crimes and the atrocities, a lot of these things didn't happen, that the people we know as comfort women were just a bunch of lying whores and they're only Korean lying whores, when the reality with the comfort women, they were, not only were they trafficked Korean, Japanese, and Taiwanese, and Chinese women, but when the trafficked women were not uh, enough, they, they went local. They either grabbed them or bought them, and that was everywhere. Uh, and you know, show, And when they say that the military had nothing to do with it, if you were a Japanese young lieutenant paymaster, you literally were trained, trained how to set up a brothel and how to manage a brothel and how to recruit or obtain women. And that, as you can well imagine, morphs into an issue of entitlement. So you have a situation uh, in the internment camps, whether they're in the Philippines or in Japan or in China or in the Dutch. And the Dutch is the only one where anyone has admitted where the Japanese just drive in and and tell you, let's line up all the 21 year, 19 to 21 year old girls. And I'll pick one of those. I'll pick one of these, one of that. I like that one. It was it was a nightmare. And with the American civilian internment camps, the women will tell you, you have to understand, this is the 1940s. Say, so, well, nothing happened. Uh, but if you were to ask them the question, how did you get the quinine? How did you get the food, the milk for the child? Well, it's a transaction. Uh, Then with the POWs uh, and with the other atrocities, they just gloss over them. And the most in 19 in 2015, the Japanese applied for the Meiji Industrial Heritage Sites, where supposedly Japan industrialized before the rest of Asia and they create they acquired machinery and completely gloss over that industrialization is about labor and. These sites, which was coal mines, foundries, docks, is very sort of random and it's just bad history. Um, many of them were, were where there were prisoners of war. And at these, so they've made these sites. They have an information center in Tokyo. There is no mention of the prisoners of war who were at these sites and who were slaved and and forced to mine coal, stoke the steel mills, were capriciously tortured, and and none of them were, there was a policy not to feed them, and there was also a policy to withhold the Red Cross boxes. So medicine didn't get to the doctors, food didn't get to the POWs. It, It was a strange policy. It wasn't, and what was interesting, again, it's systemic, it wasn't just one POW camp. So this coal mine, the Miki coal mine, which was owned by Mitsui, 
And for whatever reason, Baron Mitsui lived near there. And not only did he allow this horrific torture of Australian, British, American, Dutch, Norwegian, Malta, uh, Czechoslovakian, Saudi Arabian, all kinds of people, because they also took over merchant marine ships. So they didn't care if you were Irish. They, you're in the European POW as far as they were concerned. So Baron Mitsui would like to like to motor into the his mind to look at his white slaves, and that's how he called them. And he eventually arranged for some costumes for some of the POWs who were a bit more talkative, so he could go and watch little plays. It was just totally revolting and insulting. Um, and so, and the Miki mind was across. A, a lake, so to speak, from where Nagasaki was. And if the men were the the men who were above ground when Nagasaki was bombed, uh, actually saw the cloud and could feel the heat. Uh, it's an extraordinary experience. But they weren't liberated. Uh, a liberation team did not appear until September. So it took a long time. Though. In the end of August, we started sending over um, airdrops. But, but this mine was the largest, uh, and they would put the POWs in the mine uh, cavities that had been closed, that were old, that were the most dangerous, most capable, most pot going to fall down. Men were so adverse to working in the mine that they would that there was a group of guys who were professional bone breakers that for five bowls of your rice uh, uh, for dinner uh, you would only get one bowl you could get your arm broken or your leg broken and that would keep you out of the mine for a few days you have to understand that the different tiers of wherever the the mine shaft was uh it was either very cold or incredibly hot because it was deep into the earth and and it was under the the lake so you're often working in um water it was a horrific situation and none of these uh, POWs had been in a mine before imagine what that did to you psychologically mm -hmm. uh, and then if you're not fed and you don't have vitamins and you're not getting medical care it, it was a hellhole <clears throat> which um let's let's switch up oh, a little bit one more thing sure um, so the japanese have re have completely wrote out this history and it was all about happy smiling coal miners uh or steel workers and you know with coal the first miners in japan were convicts the next was poor poor landless japanese and their wives 30 percent of japanese coal miners were women until 1930 and then even after because you can get around rules and regulations and one of the big uh pushes for this unesco and this is something and 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 the japanese rewriting a history japan is probably the only country in the world that had a cabinet official completely focused on getting these UNESCO World Heritage Sites and history rewritten the way they want it. They literally had a cabinet official for UNESCO and rewriting of history. And they do not have one now. That person has, re, ha, has resigned, but is part of managing the, these, these industrial heritage sites and is head of the Tokyo Information Center. And it just so happens that she's very close to the Abe government, and she is the sister-in-law of the chief cabinet secretary. So it 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 is just it's it's uh, nepotism, it's gratuitous, it's arrogance, <clears throat> and it's very dangerous. When you start to rewrite history, that is a condemnation of democracy and free thought. Well, let's talk a little bit about now this the work behind the scenes about getting a congressional gold medal for P 
POWs. I know when we talked offline, you said there's uh, there's some good ones out there and there's some bad ones out there. Uh, fill in our listeners about this. This is a conundrum. Um, for for many years, we have been trying to get a congressional gold medal for the American POWs of Japan and doing it collectively for all the POWs, whether you are a China Marine surrendered on the first day of the war or you're a Wake Island Marine. And those of you who know the story of Wake Island, 400 Marines uh, fended off a Japanese armada for two weeks. And eventually when they surrendered, um, uh, they were sent to uh, Northern uh, China to work in the Northern, not Northern China, Northern Japan uh, to work in the coal mines. And of course, five guys were were taken aside on the trip up to Japan, beheaded and kicked into the water. Uh, to the the Texas battalion that was sent to Java and was captured on Java, to the American nurses on Bataan. There's there's twenty seven thousand American POWs in various situations, from the aviators onto the Bataan death march guys, but. The New Mexico delegation um, always, every Congress, and if you don't know, a Congress is only two years. The legislation is only active for two years. Every Congress introduces legislation only focused to the, the, the two units from New Mexico, the Coast Artillery units. And they try to make it so narrow that only as best people for that were in the coast artillery units that were on the baton death march would be getting the medal well that's ridiculous that that ignores and so they widened it a little bit for the and they say now the two tank units and maybe some other people well a that bill that they have introduced is riddled with historical inaccuracies and guy fort wouldn't get a POW medal, his family wouldn't get one. My guy who jumped into the water and swam to Gregador would not get a POW medal. Uh, I mean, the the aviators that that got beheaded on the deck of the ships during the Battle of Midway wouldn't get a POW medal. The the commander of the Wake Island Marines wouldn't get a POW. That's just ridiculous. That's just wrong. That's just un-American. And then there's another bill, uh, which, uh, to be quite honest, I wrote, uh, that Congressman Boost and Lowenthal have introduced. Well, there's problems with that. You have to have a bill in the House and the Senate. The New Mexico delegation has a bill in the House and the Senate. The Boost bill, I don't know what he's doing. He didn't tell us he was going to introduce it. And boost, you know, there's everything is is politics, but not in a exactly bad way. But you have to understand the House is democratic, mm-hmm. and you can't have a lead co-sponsor, lead sponsor being a Republican. It doesn't matter if it's a good guy, bad guy, what guy. It's it's just that's the dynamic. And so I'm, we don't have a lobbyist. We just have volunteers. I need more volunteers. I need people who will contact their members of Congress. I write these little uh, emails saying, you know, don't support this or support that. Uh, I'm trying to get these. And we don't have much time in all reality. I think this is the last, literally this year, would there be any living POWs left to accept the medal. And one, one of the strange ironies in this as a number of years ago, the Filipino uh, veterans were able to get a congressional gold medal because as an ethnic group, as a solid ethnic group. And so anyone who served during the war uh, would be eligible for the gold medal. So, But the problem with that is, not, though many Filipinos can say they served, a lot of them didn't in the end, because this was all thrown, the Filipino army was thrown together and the last, in a few months leading up to the war, they were never given guns, they were never trained, 
they never did anything. And awful lot of Filipinos were able to blend back into the jungle and become guerrillas or become collaborators. Uh, and so this bill, interestingly enough, is the the Filipinos have interpreted as they're giving it to people who Americans who were on the Philip who who were POWs on the Philippines. Though the intent of the legislation is just for the Filipino units. All the Filipino units had American officers. So technically only the American officers to the Filipino units and members of the Filipino units should get it. But there's another glitch, like because most people don't sweat the details, particularly this long ago, far away stuff. Mm -hmm. So the bill is written, it's for the American armed forces of the far east. Well, there was never any American armed forces of the Far East. Uh, Secretary Stimson did not like MacArthur. (laughs) A lot of people didn't like MacArthur. And the Navy particularly disliked MacArthur. So they were not going to give him control over all the armed forces of the Far East. Not going to happen. So the correct designation is the American army forces of the Far East. So the Filipino bill, if you examine it, is for nobody. (laughs) It doesn't exist. So there's been a lot of shenanigans with the Filipino bill, but now we have this Heinrich, Senator Heinrich bill. Mm -hmm. It's just insulting. It's literally insulting. Uh, and, and it's it's it it demeans the sacrifices of of these men and the heroism of these men and the internal strength of these men, and and the other thing it's women the, the women are cut out of the Heinrich Bill the first women to become prisoners of war in a combat situation was in the Philippines and those are the army nurses um, they were also nurses in on Guam. Guam was was the Japanese took over Guam on December 10th. And so there were POWs, uh, men and women uh, on Guam. And then there's the Philippines. So, and one of the other, and, and with the New Mexico, they really want to focus on the Hispanic uh, group from New Mexico, which is fine. But one of the most interesting things about the POWs of Japan is incredibly diverse group. There, it wasn't just white men. There were Native Americans. There were Chinese Americans. There were Japanese Americans. There were Black Americans. Uh, there were there were Korean Americans. There there were. Um, uh, as I said, the Alaskan natives, uh, Native Americans, uh, every ethnic group and religion was represented. The the Later Day Saints and Mormons actually had a whole group in the Cabanatuan uh, POW camp and tried to maintain a unity for as long as they could stay alive. Uh, there was a famous um, Jewish um, uh, um, soldier who had trained in Russia to be a cantor who became a religious uh, leader in the Cabanatuan POW camp and he he died on a hell ship. Um, so we need something that represents all Americans and all POWs. Well, um, fill in our listeners a little bit about how they can help out your organization and how they can maybe donate to the cause or well, volunteer their time. If you look up American Defenders of Baton and Corregidor Memorial Society, uh, there is a donation page. Uh, maybe we can, uh, and then I have a blog call, uh, and they can donate there. I would like people, if they're interested in helping with the congressional effort, to contact me directly. And I will try to see... I. I need all the help from someone who's willing to write letters to who people who have donated to the congressman so you can harass them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think like Janesville, Wisconsin, that congressman should be 
front and center, the very famous tank tank group from there. McConnell, Harris, Harrisburg, Kentucky. So I don't know how you can get out there my email or 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 the website or the two websites I would like to put out there. How can we do that? Well, uh, I if it's all right with you, I will share your email with everybody because. Uh, um, you know, I think this is something um, that people can get involved with. And if you're interested in emailing Mindy, it's Mindy Cotler Smith, ah. all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. You can. And uh, the Cotler, though, is spelled with a K, an yes. O, a T, <laughs> an L, E, R. And Smith, well, you know, that's Smith. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I. I, I Rarely say I'm Mrs. Smith because no one would believe me. <laughs> Though that doesn't make my mother-in-law happy. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> then not much I do makes her happy. <laughs> there you go. Well, before hey, we wrap I, I up, I really use some help, and there's a lot of ways to do it from merely making a phone call to. There's a lot of ways. We got to make it known that this is important. And we will bring as much uh, light to that as we can. Before we wrap up this afternoon, I just wanted to read another uh, ad for our soft rep people. If you want to get soft rep on your phone, download our free mobile app to get easy access to articles, podcasts, gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to our library of ebooks and our exclusive team room forms and content available on all your apple and android devices mindy thank you for taking the time to join us today we really appreciate it we appreciate your insight and your passion for this it's something i think we can all get behind we've heard all the uh the stories of the pow's including the you know zamparini louis zamparini who they just made a movie about uh, considering it's on the bestseller list for two years, you would think more people would be understanding of this. It's as if they never made the connection. If you want to hear a read of some of the stories I've talked about, look on my blog, which is cleverly called American POWs of Japan.blogspot.com. Well, we appreciate that, and we will definitely. Uh check that out and we encourage all our readers to do that mindy thank you for taking the time with us thank this, you this morning and uh it was a pleasure and we'll be it looking was. forward to seeing that gold medal before too long i hope so i'll invite you there you go i appreciate that okay. uh, for all of us here at soft rep radio thanks for listening soft rep radio on time on target we'll be back with another podcast in the very near future You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.